Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berea Bible Church. I've entitled the message this morning, What Must I Do to Be Saved? Now, that may sound like a simple question to you, and you say you know the answer, but this question poses a critical issue. You know, we can be wrong on a lot of things, but we don't want to be wrong here. If you take ten different people, and you ask some people, how is it that a man is to be saved, I think you'll get 11 different responses. I really do. People will say, well, you know, just ask them. Well, you got to believe. I think most people will throw that one in there, right? Then they'll add, well, you got to repent. you got to confess. you got to commit. I'm not sure how much that is, you know, but you got to commit. you got to be baptized. Some will say you got to join the church. Some will say you have to speak in tongues. I mean, you cannot be saved unless you do these things. So every different little group and schism and ism has these little things that they add to the gospel. According to some people, you have to have a futuristic, futuristic eschatology in order to be saved. Because R.C. Sproul Jr. says that preterism is a fatal, damnable heresy. Meaning you can't be saved if you don't believe the right thing about eschatology. On and on it goes. I'm sure you can see the importance of this question. Well, to answer this question, we want to go to the Scriptures. We want to look at Acts 15. In the book of Acts, we see the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost at the Jewish temple. And from there, the church grew and it flourished. And they stayed pretty much in Jerusalem. You know, it's kind of us four, no more, close the door. We're really happy with, you know, with us Jews. Until the martyrdom of Stephen... And then following the martyrdom of Stephen, the church began to spread out to Phoenicia, Samaria, Cyprus, and then to Antioch. And the Christians who arrived in Antioch, well, at first they shared the gospel with the Jews. They'd go into the synagogue and share with the Jews only. But then they began to share the gospel with the Gentiles in the city. And lo and behold, many of the Gentiles started coming to Christ, started trusting in the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And so Antioch became the mother church for the Gentiles. You know, Jerusalem was the church for the Jews, the Jewish Christians, the Hebrew Christians, but Antioch became the mother church for the Gentiles. And this was the church which Barnabas, he brought Paul to become part of basically the teaching staff there to help these Gentiles grow. At the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their first missionary journey having met with the church in Antioch to share with them all the things that God had done with them among the Gentiles. But they're rejoicing. They're just having a great time. Well, then some guys from Jerusalem come down. Verse 1 says, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Now, Antioch is having a great time. I mean, these Gentiles are hearing about a resurrected Messiah, a man who Rome put to death, but defeated death and came out of the grave and was alive and had been seen by over 500 people. And people are coming to faith and they're realizing we can have eternal life through Christ and they're excited and they're getting saved and everything's wonderful. And all of a sudden, some guys show up and say, no, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, He says they came down from Jerusalem. I don't care which way you're going, north, south, east, and west. Everything is down from Jerusalem, okay? When you go up, you go up to Jerusalem. When you come down, you go to wherever else. That's just how it is in the Scripture. It's the mount of the Lord, and when you're going, you go up. 
All right, so these guys come down, they say, unless you're circumcised according to custom most, you can't be saved. No, 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 it's not just faith in Christ. They said it's perfectly right. You want to believe in Yeshua. You want to believe in His atoning work. You want to believe in His death, burial, resurrection. Yes, that's all important. But, in order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. Now, these are Gentiles, all right? And they're excited, and then some of them are in the, you know, mid-age or older age, and they're like, what, now we've got to be circumcised? We've got to go through that? This introduces an issue that just about blew up the church of Antioch. See, because what they were really saying is in order to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. Their gospel might be stated, Christianity is Jewish. I mean, Yeshua was Jewish. It all started in Jerusalem. This is our religion, and you Gentiles want it. That's fine, but come on, you gotta, you got to join with us here. you got to believe in Yeshua, but you got to join the covenant community. You gotta come become part of us. You gotta be circumcised. And you gotta keep the law of Moses. To these Judaizers, salvation meant identifying not only with Christ, but with the nation Israel. It meant placing yourself under the Mosaic covenant, and listen, and keeping the 613 laws as defined by Judaism. Some of these Gentiles couldn't count to 10, and you gotta keep 613 laws. That's a lot of work. Now, wait a minute. I, I'm underst- I, I came to Christ understanding that the gospel was free. I had to trust Christ. It was by grace. And now you're coming and saying, I don't know. This sounds difficult, you know? Now, this specific issue that they're dealing with has long passed away as a concern for us, all right? I don't know of anybody out there preaching, you got to be circumcised to be saved. But the principle is very, very present with us today. They substitute circumcision for something else. A majority of the different groups who claim to be Christians insist on adding something to the gospel. So this is not just an obscure issue that we don't have to consider. This is something we need to understand because this teaching is everywhere. Yes, believe in Christ, but you also have to do this. Notice how Paul and Barnabas respond to the teaching. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. There's a lot of dissension. This is from the Greek word stasis, which from which we get our English word static. There was an uproar in the church Antioch because the apostles felt this was false teaching. Wait a second. We're teaching these Gentiles. They just have to trust Christ. You're coming in and adding all this other stuff to it. No, that's not how it's supposed to be. You know, they didn't just sit back and say, well, okay, if you think we should add that, let's say. No, they stood up to them. All right? They said, no, that's wrong. They spoke out. And there's an explosion in the church over the doctrines of the Word of God. People, some things are worth fighting for. They really are. We've got to take a stand on something. You know, there's always strife when we talk about the way of salvation. And the reason there's strife is because there's so many different opinions out there on how this happens. You want to prove this? Just go on Facebook and say, here's what you have to do to be saved. Boom! You'll be bombarded with all kinds of issues that people say. It doesn't really make a difference what you believe. Some will say, just so long as you believe it with fervency and zeal. 
You know, all ways lead to heaven. Just, you know, leave people alone. Let them believe what they want to believe. You know, we don't want to intrude on them. Tolerance is the issue of the day. We have to be tolerant about everything except Christianity. That you don't tolerate. Those bigoted people, we got to get rid of them. But everything else has to be tolerated. I think most people today would just say everybody's going to heaven. I mean, I don't care how debauched, how depraved someone is when they die, you know they're in heaven, right? It's just almost universalism as a key that everybody believes. They don't believe in God. If people don't believe in God, they believe people go to heaven. Well, does it make a difference? Well, it does make a difference. The Scriptures tell us what it takes. What we have to believe in. But the problem is most people don't read the Scriptures. They just get their opinion on Christianity from what they ever, whatever they feel like or what they've heard somebody else say. Nobody really tends to investigate themselves. So this is not a side issue. This has to do with salvation. This was a matter where there could be no disagreement on belief. We've got to get this one right. We've got to get it right. With some believing, you've got to keep the law. Some believing, no, that's not important. It went to the core of Christianity. This had to be resolved. They couldn't just say, well, let's agree to disagree. No, we've got to get this one right. Well, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas saw to the heart of the question. They stood firm against these new teachers, disagreeing with them and challenging them on their teaching and questioning them, arguing with them. It's finally agreed by the whole church. Let's go up to the apostles. Let's go to the mother church. Let's go back to Jerusalem and get their mind on the subject. Now, I'll tell you the truth. If I was a Gentile, and I am, I'd have been a little weary of going to the mother church. That's Jerusalem. They're all Jews. They don't really like Gentiles. You know? But they knew this is what they had to do. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and we're bringing great joy to all the brethren. And so Paul and Barnabas and a few others, they make their way to the city of Jerusalem under the official auspices of the church of Antioch. And along the way, they stop and they're sharing the gospel, they're sharing what happened, and the people are just rejoicing together. Verse 4, And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they responded and they reported all that God had done with them. Now, the apostles and the church leaders, this is basically, I would say, this is the first church council. This is the, where the church has got together to hammer out an issue, to deal with these differences and find out what, the, what do the Scriptures say about this. And the apostles here must mean a group of the apostles. They all weren't present, but the group that was there is speaking for the whole. Verse 5, But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Doesn't that sound weird, Pharisees who believed? These were the opponents of Yeshua all through the Gospels. Whenever they were being confronted, the Pharisees were there, and they're trying to trip them up, and they're trying to attack them. And they're, you know, how do you get Pharisees who believe? What happened? Well, this man they've been chasing and dogging around Jerusalem for three years, Rome put to death. They sealed the tomb, and three days later, the tomb's empty. And believe me, they sacked Jerusalem trying to find that body, and they could not find it. Because they knew if they could just bring a body, they'd shut them all up, but they couldn't find the body. And so these Pharisees heard this, and they're, you know, they're not completely stupid. They knew the law. 
And so they had to go back and start searching. And they said, someone rose from the dead. And so they've come to faith in Christ. But, you know, they're Pharisee. So they're still hanging on to their, their stuff they'd always hung on to. But, you know, 1 Corinthians, it says there were 500 witnesses to the resurrection. These guys are running around. T- we saw them. We saw Yeshua. Now, most people tell you they've talked to a dead man. You're going to think there's something wrong with them, all right? But they, he had risen from the dead. So it got their attention. Now, the Pharisees, they were renowned for their high regard for the law and their scrupulous observance of the law. They argued that all who responded to Christ and became Christians had necessary to be circumcised and enter into covenant. They must observe the whole law. He says it's necessary. We've got to circumcise them. That's what they said in verse 1, right? But now, and direct them to observe the law of Moses. This would involve, among other things, temple worship. They've got to come to the temple to worship. They've got to offer sacrifices. In Jerusalem, they've got to pay a temple tax. They've got to separate from Gentiles who didn't observe the cleanliness laws. They've got to go through the regular washings. Strict observance of the Sabbath. following 613 laws that govern the daily living of every Jew. They had to become Jews, is what they're saying. No, they, they, you just can't do it. they got to be a proselyte. And, and it wasn't that unusual. Gentiles would become proselytes of the Jewish faith. They could do that. But now they're tie, trying to tie Christianity to Judaism. Verse 6 says, And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So they said, all right, let's get together. Here's the church council. you got the apostles. you got the elders. Let's get together. Let's hammer this thing out. Let's figure out what has to happen here. Now, what we can conclude from this verse is evident that the leaders in the church of Jerusalem, they hadn't taken a position on this before. This is the first time they got to, well, we got to figure this out. How could it be that probably 10 years the church has been going on and they haven't dealt with this issue? Why hadn't they dealt with this before? wasn't Gentiles in Jerusalem. It's all Jews. Gentiles didn't even start coming into the church for about 10 years. Like I said, the Jews, they, they liked it. They had it. It was ours. We don't want to go to those Gentiles. So now we got Gentiles coming in. we got to figure out what to do with them. The question had to be settled. So in verse 7 says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. All right. So there's a lot of debate going on. They're throwing scriptures back and forth. They're arguing what they know. Well, here's what Yeshua taught. This would have been amazing to see. Because I don't think it got hostile. I think they're just really trying to decide what's the truth here. You know, it's always exciting to see Christians serious, seriousness, serious enough about the truth to debate it. They believed this was important. You know, when's the last time you had a debate with somebody about the Scriptures? I don't mean an argument, I don't mean a fight, but just to, no, that's not what the Scriptures teach. Let me show you what they teach. You know, it seems that we talk about everything except what's really important, what the Scriptures teach. We should be making an effort to not only understand it, but to share it with other people. People who are interested. Now, you've got to be smart enough to know that they're not tracking with They're not listening. Just shut up. Okay? There's no point in pouring you know, water down a clogged drain. you just got to let it go. But when you've got someone that's interested, they want to talk about it, let's talk about it. So Peter stood up and said to them, 
Peter reminded everybody present of his own experience with Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and his fellow Gentiles many years before and how God had chosen him to take the word of God, the good news to the Gentiles. I'm sure you're familiar with what happened. And even before, when Peter, he, he goes to Cornelius, he doesn't want to go there, all right? But God gives him a vision, shows him there's nothing unclean. These guys show up. He goes, yeah, I don't eat with Gentiles because Jews didn't do that. Because Gentiles don't keep kosher. And so you, you get cooties from eating at the Gentiles' houses. So they didn't do it. But Peter says, okay, God showed me this. I'm going to go. And he goes there. And Cornelius has a whole bunch of people gathered there because Cornelius is excited because some angel came to Cornelius and said, go get Peter. He's going to give you some important words. So he does. So Peter's preaching a sermon. And before he even finishes his message, before he gets to the invitation, the Holy Spirit interrupts him and saves the Gentiles. That's rude, isn't it? <laughs> and it happens right after Peter says in chapter 10, verse 43, of him, speaking of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, Yeshua, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, please notice that the only thing that Peter tells these Gentiles to do is believe in Christ. Now, to believe in Yeshua means that I believe He is the Son of God who gave Himself on a cross for my sins. To believe in Yeshua means that I no longer rely on anything in myself to commend myself to God. Rather, I trust only in what Yeshua did on the cross for me and for my forgiveness. So many people say, yeah, I believe it's important to trust Christ, but you also have to do. No, it's not. Christianity is not do anything. Christianity is done. It's finished. He paid the price. We have to trust what he did for us. There's nothing in the gospel about works. Nothing that we add to it. It's all about trusting what he did for us. Now, chapter 11, after the incident with Cornelius, they're rehashing the incident with Cornelius. And there's something interesting in chapter 11 that we don't see in 10. It tells, you know, Cornelius is saying that an angel came to me and said, okay, you got to go get Peter. You got to get him to come down here. He's going he's gonna to tell you some things. And here's what he says. Peter will speak to you words to you. He's going to speak words to you by which you will be saved. You and your household. Peter's going to come and he's going to tell you how to get saved. Now, here's what you do. When you read something like that, you go back into chapter 10 and read the words that Peter was going to tell him on how to be saved. And you search high and low for cha through chapter 10 and you'll never find him telling them to do anything other than believe the gospel. Here's how you be, he's going to, he's going to give you words by which you should be saved. But man, people add all kinds of things. They're not in there. They were saved without any of those things that people say we have to have. He said, you've got to believe the gospel. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Every one of them. No additions. Verse 8 and 9. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, speaking of the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. He bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit. What had been especially significant was that God, who knows the heart, had bore witness even while they're uncircumcised. 
He cleansed their hearts by faith. He gave to them His Holy Spirit the same way that He had to the Jews who believed. Look, He says He made no distinction between us and them. That's incredible. Especially the way the Jews and Gentiles, they literally hated each other, but He said, well, God didn't make a distinction. Not at all. This comes straight from his vision of clean and unclean animals, which God taught the principle, God has shown me that I should call no man common or unclean. Peter got the message. Those of the sect of the Pharisees who believe thought that the Gentiles were inherently common. They were unclean. And they needed to do some things to get clean before they could be saved. Peter said, no, God didn't make a distinction between us. Peter's argument is that God wouldn't give the Holy Spirit like He did to us if there was something wrong with them, if their heart hadn't been circumcised. And the fact that He sent the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles the instant that they believed apart from them being circumcised shows that salvation is by faith alone, not by faith plus circumcision or anything else of the law. Now, if God testified to their salvation based solely on their faith, how could anyone require anything else of them? That's what the council is talking about. Well, okay, it's obvious that God accepted them. What are we going to do? And God didn't make a distinction between us and them. How could this council make any distinctions? If the salvation of those Gentiles in the home of Cornelius set not only a precedent, but a pattern, then simple faith in Christ alone was all that was necessary for Gentiles to be saved. Now therefore, he says, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? To put God to the test is to insist that someone must be circumcised in order to be saved when God has indicated His approval apart from circumcision. Well, God said this and you're saying this. You're putting God to the test. You're saying God's not right. Why are you doing that? I'd like you to notice the term he used here for being under the Mosaic Law. Yoke. <laughs> the Mosaic Law is a yoke. And people, the church today is being put back under this yoke every Sunday. Both Paul and Peter speak of being under the Law of Moses as being under a yoke of bondage. Peter said, why do you want to put him under a yoke which... Neither our fathers nor we have... We can't keep the 613 laws. Why do you want to put it on them? Because if we're miserable, they need to be miserable. Right? Misery loves company. Let's all get in on this. Put them under it also. Verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Yeshua in the same way as they also are. That we here as the apostles and elders. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Yeshua, we shall be saved as they. In other words, Paul, Barnabas, and I, and others agree. Salvation is through grace. That's it. If we're saved through what we do, we're not saved by grace. You understand the difference. Something's free, something you've got to pay for, right? If you work for it, it's not grace. It's earned. I better keep going without making comments. <laughs> I don't want to get too political here. <laughs> you know, that's quite a statement for a Jew to make. You would have expected them to say, for Peter to say, we religious Jews are saved in the same way as these pagan Gentiles are, namely through the grace of our Lord Yeshua. We are saved through grace in the same way as they are. 
That doesn't make sense. He should say they're saved in the same way we are. No, we're saved like them. It's just grace. Grace means free, unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. There's no strings attached. Human merit plays no part in salvation. If you add something to the gospel, you destroy the gospel. Because it's no longer grace. It's Now it's you and Christ saving you. And if you don't need Christ, it's not the gospel. Grace and human effort are mutually exclu- exclusive. Peter reached his conclusion. That apparently satisfied the multitude. And we read in verse 12, And all the multitude kept silent. In other words, hmm, that makes sense what Peter's saying, I guess. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter's words moved them to silence. Peter stated the facts. Paul and Barnabas confirmed the statement. God had accredited Paul and Barnabas, authenticated their gospel. They're seeing all these signs and wonders were happening. And they're just like, amen, it's obviously God's doing a work here. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, it got quiet again, James answered. So James stands up and says, brethren, listen to me. All right, now this is James, the half-brother of Yeshua. He didn't believe in Yeshua until after the resurrection. He was his own brother. That had to be annoying growing up with him as your brother. All right? Why don't you be more like Yeshua? You're our brother who's always perfect, never does anything wrong. What's wrong with you, James? And I'll be like, man, that's not, a, not good to be a brother him. Probably a little aggravated, but didn't believe in him. But again, what changed James' mind? Well, he was there. He saw his brother put to death, hung on a cross, stuck in a tomb. Then he saw his brother alive. I'm like, uh, there must be something to this. All right? He didn't believe until after the resurrection. Well, James became a very important man in the church in Jerusalem. Many think he was the head of the Jerusalem church. And that, that just kind of makes sense. Look at verse 14. Simeon, James says, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So James refers to Peter's description of the evangelization of Cornelius and his fellow Gentiles. Everybody knew about this. This spread far and wide. God had undoubtedly taken from among Gentiles a people for his name. In light of all the facts of Acts 11, 1 through 18, this really wasn't open to dispute. People knew it. The Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. He says he called, he called the Gentiles, taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, this is really fascinating in Greek here because the Greek word for Gentiles here is ethne. And you're familiar with that. But the Greek word for people here in this passage is laos. Now, the Jews considered themselves the laos of God. They were the people. Okay? And they were never among the ethne. For them, ethne and laos were contrasting words, just like Jew and Gentile. All right? So it would be challenging for them to hear that God first visited the ethne to take from them a laos. You're taking a people from them? No, we're the people. They're the ethne. So he's saying, no, God chose to take from the ethne a laos. So James heightens the radical nature of the new thing that God has done. This is significant. Verse 15 And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as written. 
Now, what is it that the prophets agree with? He says, with this, it refers back to what he just said in verse 14, taking from among the Gentiles a people. God's calling people from the Gentiles. And he says, with this, the prophets agree. Now, notice that James uses the plural here for prophets, indicating that the thing illustrate from, that he's going to illustrate from Amos is also something that could have illustrated from other places as well. Now, James judges this new work of God the way any work of God should be judged. He says, let's go to the Scriptures. Let's see what we can find in the Scriptures. And he quotes from Amos. Now, when Amos first quoted this, you would have never thought he meant what James says he means. Okay? Because they're interpreting. The New Testament writers under the inspiration are showing you, here. here's what's going on here. He's quoting, he's quoting from Amos. He says, after these things I'll return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Oh, this sounds like something physical going on. Yeah, the tabernacle's being rebuilt. Our juice, you know, we're going to tear that moss down. This is all going to happen. It's not what he's talking about. Verse 17. In order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. What? And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So, hey, the tabernacle's being rebuilt. And guess what? Gentiles get to get in on this. Says the Lord who makes these things known from old. What is the tabernacle of David? Man, you want to talk about differences of opinion on this issue. Historically, the tabernacle of David was a tent where David housed the ark of God during the latter part of his reign. The ark of the covenant was originally in the tabernacle, tabernacle of Moses, also called the tabernacle of the congregation. Well, in the year 1050 BC, David brought the ark to Jerusalem and he put it in a tent. The tabernacle of David. The ark stayed in David's tabernacle for 40 years until Solomon built the temple, and then it was moved to the temple of Solomon. So when James actually quotes this, he's not talking about a tent. We're going to rebuild this tent. He's not talking about a tabernacle. He's not talking about anything physical, and that's what we learn. But we, we, get, we learn how to interpret some of these prophetic events by the New Testament writers. The booth of David, the tent of David, is Yeshua. It is the resurrected Yeshua. That's what's being rebuilt. That's what's being restored. The Davidic dynasty, because Yeshua is the Davidic Messiah. So the booth of David, the tent of David, is actually David's household. It's his family. It's his dynasty, which converges in the outcome that is the Messiah, Yeshua. Now, when the birth of Yeshua was announced to Mary, the angel told her this. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord, your God, will give him the throne of his father David. So the Messiah, Yeshua, is going to sit on the throne of David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. An unending kingdom. So the promise of the tabernacle of David being rebuilt, when properly understood, is seen to refer to neither a continuous line of Jewish kings, descended from David, nor a reconstruction of the Jewish nation, but the perpetual reign of Yeshua in the church, which is his holy habitation. See, the tabernacle of David pitched in Zion, the city of David, becomes the dwelling place of Yahweh. And I see the tabernacle of David as a prophetic symbol of Yahweh's dwelling place. Because Yahweh dwelt over the ark. 
in the tabernacle. That was his house. That was his dwelling place. And you, when you went there, you went there with great caution. You brought a burnt offering. You brought a sin offering. Because you didn't want to be killed when you went to visit God. Well, now he's saying it's the church is the dwelling place. Notice what Peter writes. Speaking of Christians, you also as living stones. You ever seen a living stone? No, I haven't either, but he's using this metaphorically. I believe you believers are living stones because we're building something with these stones. You're being built up. It's a present tense. It's happening at the time. A spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So we're being built into this house, these first century believers, these living stones are being built into a house for God to dwell in. And they're offering up spiritual sacrifice. It's not animals they're killing. It's praise they're giving to God through Yeshua the Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Peter's quoting from Isaiah. And he establishes two important facts. Yeshua's eternal habitation was being built. Not in the natural world, but in the spiritual world. Secondly, the Zion of prophecy is God's abode. That is where God dwells. He dwells in Zion. Now these two facts help us in interpreting Acts 15-16. The tabernacle that David built for the ark was in Zion, the city of David. Now the name Zion designates a spiritual locality, the place of God's eternal dwelling. Thus it would naturally follow that the expression tabernacle of David is also spiritual in meaning. The tabernacle of David spoken by Amos is used as a prophetic symbol for the habitation of God. God's building a new habitation. Look what he tells the Ephesian believers. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, people, it's not literal. Apostles and prophets didn't lay down and we start building things on top of them, okay? He's talking spiritually. Christ Yeshua being the cornerstone, the keystone, the thing that holds this whole building together, in whom the building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple for the Lord. How many buildings do you know that grow? But in the first century, this was a building. It was a living, breathing habitation of God. The church is what he's talking about. Whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. It's the church. God's chief purpose in saving the Gentiles is that may He use them as living stones in building this spiritual house as His dwelling place. A place for Him to indwell. And this is James' argument. The salvation of the Gentiles agrees with what Amos said. What Peter has done, taking the Gospel to the Gentiles, he's talking about the Cornelius event, people being saved. What Peter did is a fulfillment of what Amos said. See, Amos said the tabernacle of David would be restored in order that the Gentiles may seek God. The Gentiles were now being saved. So what does that tell you about the tabernacle of David? It was at that time being restored. Because Gentiles couldn't come to faith until the tabernacle of David was restored. So Amos 5.3, they're being brought in. They couldn't be saved until the tabernacle had been restored. And since the Gentiles were being saved, the tabernacle was being restored. This passage speaks of the restoration of Israel, which includes all the Gentiles, the church being brought in. We are the church. We are the habitation of God. God doesn't dwell in a building. He doesn't dwell in a tent or tabernacle. He indwells with His church. 
People, we are, listen, we are holy ground because we are the habitation of God. You know, you read the story in Acts 5 about Ananias and Sapphira getting killed. You're like, man, that seems severe, doesn't it? All they did was lie. <laughs> and they got killed. Why? Well, in the Old Covenant, if you, got, you messed up going into the tabernacle of God, you would be killed. Well, now he's saying this is the new tabernacle, the church. It's holy ground, and God wants it holy. And he's just setting an illustration. This is how he feels about it. Bang, they lie. If that still happened today, just think how pure the church would be. Be just a very few people sitting around having fellowship. Everybody else be dead. All right. But listen, when that happened, Ananias and Sapphira, it didn't chase people away. It brought them together. There was a fear of the Lord, and they understood what was going on. All right. Keep in mind that the Jerusalem conference was occupied not with some future work of God. They wanted to talk about what was happening at the time. We got Gentiles. What do we do with them? For his visitation of the Gentiles, beginning through Peter at the house of Cornelius and continuing through Paul and Barnabas and various things that were going on in Asia Minor, this subject was the only subject they're discussing. What do we do with the Gentiles? That's what they were considered. What was the pro- who was the promise of Amos 9.11 made to? In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Who's that made to? Amos is writing to Israel, the ten northern tribes. And yet James is saying this prophecy is being fulfilled in the church right now. And I believe the Bible teaches the essential continuity of Israel in the church, the elect of all ages as one people of God with one Savior and one destiny. There's no division anymore. And anyone who makes a division between Israel and the church, they're confused. We're one people. We inherited the promises, as this Amos makes so clear. The promise of the new covenant was made to who? Israel and Judah. Who got it? The church. Pentecost shows up, the church is born. So James is using Scripture to support Peter's argument that salvation for all people, Jew or Gentile, is by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. The quote from Amos and James concluding comment was that Peter emphasized in verse 7 that the salvation of the Gentiles originated with God, not with man. It's not something Peter or Paul or Barnabas dreamed up. God's purpose had to do from eternity with calling these people to himself. And he revealed it through the prophets centuries before that. And in verse 19, he says, therefore, this is James, it's my judgment, he's the head of the church there in Jerusalem. It's my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Man, this verse ought to be posted in every church. Every church needs to get hold of this verse and understand what it says. We are not to trouble those who are turning to God. I like the way the NIV translates this. Yes, I said it. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult. You know, the church seems to do everything it can today to make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Oh, that's great. You trusted Christ? Good. Now you know what you need to do? You need to tithe. The church I belonged to when I was a Baptist, if you joined the church, the very first thing that happened, you got offering envelopes in the mail very quickly. Okay? Because, I mean, you know, hey, that's important. And the church today is under the tithe. Now, far as I understand the scripture, the tithe was given to Israel. 
Because they were a theocracy. And the tithe went to support the Levites because the Levites didn't have an inheritance. Okay? And it wasn't 10%, it was 23 and a half. So if you're going to tithe, let's get serious about it. Okay? Give 23 and a half. But the church wants to put you under that bondage. The church, the Baptist church that I used to go to many, many years ago, a man got saved, came to Christ. They found that he worked at Bush Gardens. You need to quit your job. You, Bush Gardens serves alcohol. You can't be a Christian and work at Bush Gardens. Talk about making it difficult for those who turn to God. Now I got to find a new job. I got to give a tenth of my income. Another big issue at this church was your hair cannot touch your ears. Your hair can't touch. It's every staff meeting. The issue of hair came up. You got to talk to so-and-so. His hair's touching his ears. I mean, okay, I, I, I trusted Christ. Now I got to quit my job. I got to, and I got to give 10% of my income, which I won't have because I got to quit my job. My hair can't touch my ears. I got to get baptized. On and on and on it goes. The church today makes it difficult for those who are coming to Christ because they don't explain it. Listen, it's a free gift. It's a free gift given to you by God. We come here to learn the scripture so we can grow together, not to put people under bondage. Now, there's an emphasis in the Greek here on my. Literally, James is saying, I judge that. James knew how important this issue would be. And he was trying to tell him, listen, don't worry about circumcision. There's an authority here in James' voice that we don't see in Peter. The authority was felt by all who were there because they understood this is the head of the Jerusalem church. He seems to be chairing this meeting, so to speak. Don't make it difficult. Don't make it difficult. We, you know, we're here to try to help people who come to faith in Christ not make it difficult for them by putting all these laws on them, all these burdens on them, all these, oh, it's just sad today. You know, you can't even imagine some of the things that people go through. Burdens, burdens. Do what? Head covering. All kind. you know, I, when, I, when I think of burdens... When I think of burdens, the one thing I really think about, I remember back to the day my mother went to a revival meeting in home. I lived here. She lived in Pennsylvania. She called me up in tears. The guy that was there preaching said, you know, he's preaching the tithe. But he said, here's the thing. Since you become a Christian, you're obligated to the tithe. Now, if you've missed any of that, you owe it. God, you owe God that money. You got to give it to him or, you know, he's going to break your refrigerator, break your, you do all. I heard, you know how many messages I heard of God's going to break your stuff? If you don't give him a tie. And she was ready to mortgage her house to try to pay this debt. I'm like, just stay away from that church. That's all you need to do, okay? The guy's a fruitcake, all right? But you know what? That benefits who? The church. That's why they preach that. They got to pay for the lights. They got to pay for the huge building that they just built. So they put the burden on you. <sighs> all right. Let's try to move on here. Don't make it difficult. This is an interesting word in the Greek. It means to put an obstacle in their path. <laughs> Isn't that what they do? These people, you know, all of a sudden they've come to Christ and, man, I want to live for God, but we're going to make it difficult. All right? We're going to put some stumbling blocks. Make sure you're serious about this. Imposing all these requirements on them. Circumcision, observance of the Moses law, all these things. Making it difficult for people to turn to God. This is not the job of the church. It's the job to not make it difficult. 
Or the decision of the Jerusalem Council then was that the gospel for Jew and Gentile was salvation, was a gift of God's grace through faith alone. Faith in the person and work of Yeshua, the Messiah, who bore one's sins in judgment so that we could be pronounced righteous in the sight of God, that we would have eternal life as a gift. Now those who taught otherwise didn't have the approval of the Jerusalem church. Paul and Barnabas were right. Those who came down to Antioch from Judea, they're wrong. They're coming from Jerusalem. They act like they got authority. They're wrong. And James, after having said that we have freedom from the law, we don't need to be circumcised either to become a member of the covenant company or to be saved, he introduces a few things to these Gentiles that they're supposed to do. Alright? You're saved by grace through faith alone. Then he says this, but that we write to them, the Gentiles, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what's strangled, and from blood. Basically saying, stay away from adultery, stay away from idolatry, and don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Well, write to who? He says, we write to them. Them and they here are the Gentile Christians. Why should Gentile believers observe these things? Why, why are you telling us this? He says in verse 21, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. See, these requirements would be necessary because wherever you go in the city, there's going to be Jews, and this started with Jews, and you're going to offend the Jews if you do this stuff. So don't do it. Don't offend them. There's Jews everywhere. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them, <laughs> to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men from the brethren. Notice the stress here on the apostles and elders, the whole church is involved in this. Yes, this is the right decision. They wanted Antioch to know everybody up here is in agreement. The whole church is involved. And they sent this letter. All right, so they're, they're going to send a letter down to Antioch, tell them, here's what we thought about it. In verse 20, James says, we should write to them. And here it says they sent him a letter. So he said, we've got to write him a letter. We've got to tell them what the outcome was. So let's do that. Let's give him a letter and let's send it on the way. So they write the letter and the letter says, greetings. Greetings. It's an interesting word because it's only used one other place in the New Testament, and that's in James 1.1. And it makes everybody think, well, James obviously wrote this letter. You know, he wrote this with his own hand, sending it to them as the head. I want you guys to know what's going on. This is the first letter ever sent to a church. The very first letter. A lot of the epistles, they're not written yet. But they're sending a letter down to Antioch from the apostles. And this letter is telling the Gentiles how they should view the Torah, the law of Moses. The letter said this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. The essentials. The word essentials only used here in the New Testament. It's the Greek word eponankis, and it means necessary. Please notice here, here's what's necessary. We, all right, we come to the decision. We talk about this. What do they have to do as far as law of Moses? Here's the good news. You don't have to keep the 613 laws. You don't even have to keep 10. Okay, here's what we want you to do. Out of all these commandments, here's the essentials. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, things strangled. All those have to do with idolatry, all right? 
and from fornication. All right? Stay away from sexual sins. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you'll do well. Now, if the Gentiles could be saved as Gentiles without coming under the law of Moses, why do they have to do these things? Isn't this salvation by works? No, because he's not talking about salvation at all. Look what he says. If you keep yourselves free from such things, that'll be good. Not you'll be saved. It'll be good. It'll go well for you. You'll have peace. Everybody will get along. It'll be wonderful. Nothing about salvation. You're doing this so you don't offend your Jewish brothers. So why these four essentials? This is what's interesting. It's generally recognized that these four prohibitions come from Leviticus 17 and 18. Glennie writes, Leviticus 17 and 18 in the Mosaic text contains five appearances of the phrase, the alien living among them or among you. Let's look at one of them, Leviticus 17.10. And any man from the house of Israel and for, or from the aliens who sojourn among you. So you got Israel traveling around. They got a set of rules and a set of standards. Here's how they live by. But there's aliens there. And not space aliens, but they're not, they're non-Jews and they're with them. All right. So here's some commandments for these non-Jews. Who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the people. So the appearances of the phrase are concerned. They, they carry, there's four different prohibitions where we see this phrase of the aliens who sojourn among you. So four things that are prohibited in the book of Leviticus. And they happen to correspond in the same order with the prohibitions given in the apostolic letter. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols, blood, things strangled, fornication. Now, he, the issue here is not a question of whether these things are necessary for salvation. That's not the issue. It was whether they were necessary for fellowship and communion with your Jewish brothers. See, refraining from these things would greatly reduce the cultural tension that existed between Jews and Gentiles who used to hate each other. Well, now they're together in the body of Christ, so let's do things or don't do things that offend them. So James is telling you Gentile believers, though you're not bound under the law of Moses, you are bound under the law of love. And we are bound under that law, the law of love. The law of love tells them, don't unnecessarily antagonize your Jewish neighbors, both in or out of the church. All right? So here's the whole letter. Let me, let me give you the whole letter. All right. Big disagreement in Antioch. Antioch church is doing fine till these, you know, Judaizers show up and blow the place up. You got to keep the law of Moses. You got to be circumcised. Oh man. So they get together. The council argues about this. They finally come to a decision. All right. We got a conclusion. Let's send a letter. Here's the letter in its entirety. All right. And they sent the letter by them saying, the apostles, the brethren who are the elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria, Cilicia, from the Gentiles, greetings. That's the letter. Greetings. Hey, we're welcoming you people. Since we have heard that some of our number, whom we gave no instructions, have disrupted you with their words unsettling your souls. We didn't send these people. They got nothing to do with us. They didn't come from us. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, and we're all together on this, to select men and to send you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit unto us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. That's it. Farewell. It's all over. 
we're done. This letter has 155 words in it in English. What's the shortest epistle in the canon of Scripture? Not Jude. Do what? Getting closer. Third John. Third John is the shortest letter. Third John is twice the size of this letter. It's over 320 words. And this is likely the first letter sent to the church, and its significance of this letter is beyond measure. It's saying, don't worry about the law of Moses, believers. Just abstain from these four things so you don't offend your Jewish brothers. If you do these things, will go well with you. Farewell. Man, nice, nice short letter. Now watch what it says. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, delivered letters. So they get down there and believe me, the church in Antioch is kind of anxious, all right? Because, you know, you got, you got males down there in their mid, you know, midlife, older males, and they're like, we got to get circumcised, 613 laws, we got to keep kosher, I mean, like, we got to change our whole diet, we got to change our whole wardrobe, we got to have surgery, we got to have all these, you know, this is not, and they're, so they're kind of like, we hope this thing doesn't turn out the way we think it might turn out. So they go down, they give them these words, and when they read it, they rejoice because of its encouragement. This has to be a huge understatement. Has to be. I mean, can you imagine how excited they were? Excited they were down there in Antioch when they hear, guess what? It's grace alone. They should have been excited as we're excited to hear that message. You know, someone who lives in the bondage of some church all their life and understands they hear the message of grace and they're like, wow, I'm free. We don't have to be circumcised. Hey, yay. We don't have to keep 613 laws. We don't even have to keep the Ten Commandments. Nothing in there about that in order to be saved. None of those things. They're rejoicing in the fact that salvation was by grace through faith and they didn't need to become Jews. You know, if the council would have decided that Gentile believers had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, Christianity would have died out in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Because if you attach that to Judaism, when Judaism was destroyed, guess what? Christianity destroyed. But no, it's not attached. They uncoupled it. They decided the law of Moses had nothing to do with Christianity. It's too bad that most of churchianity today doesn't understand the great news that the council found so 2,000 years ago. Most of the church has no clue about this. Because most of the church is in bondage. Some kind of bondage. There's something that they have to do. And people, that's a sad position to be in. Instead of joying the freedom and the liberty that we have as the sons of God, Most Christians walk around with their head down. They're defeated. I just can never live up to. You don't have to. And what a message that we could tell them, you know what? If you've trusted Christ, you're as righteous as Christ because He took your sin and He gave you His righteousness. And you stand before God righteous. You are in Christ. When God looks at you, He sees you in Christ. That's your position. That's an awesome position, people. If we could really... Come to the knowledge of that position. That's how God views us. We mess up. We do things wrong. We sin. Yes, we do. Guess what? There's forgiveness. Christ didn't forgive your past sins. And then you come to Him and, okay, from now on, you've got to make sure you do penance and take care of the rest of them. He forgave your past, your present, and your future sins. It's all a package deal. Wiped it all out. Took it all. You're free. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for this little letter that has such huge theological significance, Father. 
it teaches us so clearly our relationship to Torah. We're free. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this counsel. Thank you for these godly men who got together, hammered out this decision, and set these believers in Antioch free. We still rejoice in that today, Lord. I pray for your people, Lord. I pray that your people would realize the freedom we have in Christ, and we would enjoy it. Thank you, Father. Amen.